0: Hello, I'm Des Deerlove. Today we're delighted to welcome to the Thinkers 50 studio, Pankash Gemawat. Pankaj was the youngest ever appointed professor at Harvard Business School and he is now at IESA in Barcelona where he is professor of global strategy. Pankash, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Des.
0: Now this new book that you've written, World 3.0, tell us, start, let's start with the book. What was wrong with world 1.0 and 2.0 and 0.0 for that matter?
1: Well, uh, let's start with world 1.0. When I was in graduate school, I had a whole course in macroeconomics from Martin Feldstein. And what he told us on the last day of the course was, well, it's great that you've absorbed all these models, but these are all closed economy models. And if you want to take advanced macroeconomics, well, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So that, to me, is world 1.0, recognizing that there are cross-border interactions, but still pretending that we can more or less grasp reality by thinking of countries as self-contained.
0: OK. And then the next one, what, what's, what, we may then move into
1: world 2.0. World 2.0 is actually still with us. This is this belief that is the polar opposite of World 1.0, which is that national borders don't matter at all, and that cross-border integration is nearly complete. So I ran a survey recently on the Harvard Business Review web platform, giving people three different worldviews that they could sign up for and 62% of the respondents went for Tom Friedman's characterization of a world in which borders don't matter, distances is irrelevant, languages have no effect, and so forth.
0: Okay, now interestingly I read in the book that the word globalization appears in the American dictionary in 1951, I think, it, I think you say. Where are we now with globalization? Clearly the world isn't as flat as Tom Friedman would have us believe.
1: Right, I think most people would recognize that there's still some barriers but it's amazing to me how many people regard those as just noise or trivial as witness the responses to the HBR blog post that I was telling you about. So what I'd like to do is get people to focus on countries of particular interest to them and try and really understand the structure of those countries' international economic relationships. So take the U.S. for example. Uh, The U.S.'s largest bilateral trading partner isn't China, it's Canada. Canada is also the largest supplier of oil to the United States. Uh, Canada also ranks in the top two countries in terms of destinations for U.S. citizens placing phone calls. And yet Canada is certainly not the second largest economy in the world.
0: So it's interesting. But I mean the book is full of a whole battery of, of quite startling um, statistics that suggest that the world hasn't globalized to the extent that we think. I think there was there was one saying that international phone calls actually only account for 1% of total phone calls, which is shocking in a, to, to people who believe in the globalized world.
1: Well, it's a bit higher. It's 2%. 2%, sorry. But uh, I, I think the basic point that uh, these levels of cross-border interactions are much lower than a what you would expect in a fully integrated world and secondly also much lower than what people tend to guess Suggests that it's important to in some sense recalibrate and start with an accurate picture of how integrated we actually are and that's what I try and present in World 3.0
0: now, the other interesting thing about this is that, that much as you have people who, are, who want, want to be sort of ahead of the curve and talking about the world being flat, there are also a lot of people who are very frightened of globalization. Why are people so scared of it?
1: Well, I think it goes back to exaggerations about how globalized we actually are. If you're pro-globalization, this is dangerous because it suggests to you that there's no further room for increases in integration to yield any benefits. And if you're anti-globalization, in a 100% globalized world, it's plausible to blame everything on globalization. So many of the fears that anti-globalizers have about globalization are fueled by the same kinds of misconceptions that lead even pro-globalizers to overlook the gains from additional integration
0: so people are fearful about their jobs losing their jobs people are fearful about perhaps poor the, the the poorer parts of the world being exploited by the richer parts of the world all of these sorts of things but what you're saying is that, that that's not that that's that's sort of um rather um overblown
1: well it's uh, uh, there're some real issues and i spend uh, seven chapters in my book dealing with various kinds of market failures and fears that people have and whether globalization makes them better or worse. And I think that for some of these failures and fears, you can actually see globalization ameliorating rather than aggravating things. For others, for others of these failures and fears, while globalization may play a role, 10 to 20% globalization plays a very different role from what one might expect 100% globalization to play.
0: So uh, again, a tension within the book, in fact, sort of the central tension in the book, is between this process of globalization or integration, if you like, between economies and the notion of regulation and reining it back and to some extent protectionism. Is, is that, a, can that tension be resolved?
1: Well, um, I think that at the end of the day, there are uh, some tensions, but I think again, the tensions do get relaxed if you, recognize how limited current levels of globalization are. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. What people in poor countries in particular worry about the most, but even people in rich countries do as well, is food prices. And in fact I started writing this book in response to the international rice crisis in 2007-2008 when international rice prices tripled. To many people then and to many people now, like President Sarkozy in France, this is an argument for shutting down international trade in rice. When you realize that only 5% of the rice that is produced in the world is traded internationally, you realize that what's happening is anything that happens on the supply side, or anything that's happening on the demand side, does get loaded onto that 5%. Mm. And the way of dealing with that is not to reduce that 5% to 2% or 1%. It's to increase the fraction that's traded globally. So that would be the point about uh, increasing integration helping. I think you'd also asked about regulation. Mm. And I do think that rice is a good illustration that while increased integration can, in this instance, help reduce volatility, probably isn't sufficient because it's neither politically nor ethically justifiable to let people starve if they can't afford rice at the prices that it settles down at. So at the end of the day, I have a message that involves certainly relying on integration as the prime engine of moving the global economy forward, but recognizing that in some circumstances we will need some regulation. But right, here's another example
0: for you. What about the rare earths point that people make that, that, that China appears to have achieved something of a monopoly in this area? This um, commodity being used in a lot of electronic and computer devices. What's the situation there?
1: Well, uh, certainly China has approximately 95% of rare earths production. Uh, This is another kind of market failure that people worry about, Mm -hmm. uh, small numbers or in its extreme form, monopoly. Mm -hmm. Monopolies are bad, but it's hard to sort of say, okay, we're the U.S. or we're the U.K. uh, We should shut ourselves off from the world in response to this problem. It's much more efficient to do what's being done and help other countries that have reserves like Vietnam develop those sources of rare earths. And so I think that we still have a lot of monopolies or oligopolies, particularly in commodity sectors. And the answer is not to shut oneself off, because something like rare earths, there is no possibility if you don't have those reserves of developing them yourselves. But it's sort of trying to build up a more robust supply chain that involves more integration with more countries rather than turning ones back on world and, markets. And
0: Japan is very much into recycling and reusing, um, it, it, to, I guess, um, tackling the same sort of issue. Okay, One of the things I really like about the book is that it, it talks to how we should respond or how we can respond as individuals, and it recognizes that we are you know, a unit of analysis in this globalized world, and I particularly like the, the notion of the rooted cosmopolitan. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, the rooted cosmopolitan is a little bit of an analog of the country example that I was just using. Where you're located affects what's close and what's far. So, a rooted cosmopolitan uh, recognizes that uh, you know certain experiences and certain peoples are much more proximate to themselves. A rooted cosmopolitan a cosmopolitan does not attempt this rootless cosmopolitan idea of trying to pretend that one cares equally about everything that's happening everywhere in the world uh... rooted cosmopolitan just realizes that we're uh... we all have certain roots and that's important to figuring out what we should try and do and whom we should try and do it with
0: so it's a slightly more realistic notion than, than than urging people to suddenly become global citizens, which we seem to have sort of signally failed to um, take
1: on board. That's right, and my favorite example of that is uh, this notion of uh, sort of looking at the reality versus some of the rhetoric around global citizens. So people who have the concept of universal cosmopolitans as opposed to rooted cosmopolitans suggests to us that we should care equally about people halfway around the world as we do about our neighbors. I think both psychologically and economically that's somewhat unrealistic. What I emphasize instead in my book is that if you look at how much for instance the governments of rich countries spend on domestic poor versus foreign poor the ratio is roughly about 30,000 to one And what we're talking about with, say, the Rio targets for increasing aid to developing countries is bringing that ratio down from 30,000 to 1 to 15,000 to 1. That strikes me as a much more realistic proposition than simply saying, OK, that ratio has to go to 1 is to 1, Mm. which is not going to happen this century or probably the next century
0: so being a bit more realistic about it but when we talk about you you were talking about governments there you touched on the subject of regulation do we need a new sort of regulation or sort of we've 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 tended to operate in terms of national regulation is the is the time now for sort of supranational regulation that could be effective or is, is is that even desirable
1: well i mean governmental bandwidth is always scarce and i think especially given how old our multilateral institutions are That's the scarcest uh, kind of governmental bandwidth uh, imaginable. So another thing that I try and do in the book is really try and articulate which kinds of problems can be regulated locally and which few problems absolutely do require multilateral coordination and multilateral regulation. So take the problems associated with pollution, for instance, Mm. for most pollutants, that have very short radii, that are, operate over very short distances, local or national regulation works perfectly fine. For pollutants with intermediate ranges, like say carbon dioxide, that, uh, like acid rain having to do with sulfuric acid being deposited by rain, regional solutions uh, can work and regional solutions have in fact worked. And then, of course, the hardest kind of problem is something like carbon dioxide and global warming, which isn't distance sensitive. And yes, there, we do need multilateral coordination. But rather than say that everything should be a multilateral solution, I try and specify in what kinds of cases is multilateral coordination really required, because that's the kind of coordination that seems hardest to achieve.
0: Take a, a, a sort of a live example at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of concern, a lot of interest in the Eurozone, in the plight of Greece, and, its debt and Ireland. Um, and there's, there's, there's concerns that that might spread in a sort of a domino way to, to Spain, for one, and, to, and certainly to Italy as well. The governments appear at the moment to be caught between the notion of sort of more integration, coming closer, and perhaps taking a backward step. I guess the question is. Can can we put a reverse gear on globalization, on on integration? Can you actually go backwards? Is that a realistic proposition? And the second one is, what could be put in place? How can is is it inevitable that we're moving to a sort of a a a united Europe?
1: Well, let's start with the problems in the eurozone. I think uh, the problems in the eurozone, and it's a similar set of problems with the Schengen area without border controls that the UK also stayed out of was a focus on just administrative barriers between countries and the very naive notion that if you got rid of those administrative barriers, all other problems would be taken care of. Perfect integration would result. Uh, remove, uh, having a common currency did not eliminate the economic differences amongst different parts of Europe in terms of productivity, growth rates, willingness to work long hours, etc. Similarly, eliminating border controls did not eliminate the cultural prejudices that people in different parts of Europe have about people from other parts of Europe. So one of the things that has to happen is recognizing that there are actually many barriers to cross-border integration and that unbalanced integration is not the way to go. Having said that, I am very worried that uh, steps backward in terms of revocation of the Schengen Accords or ejecting, as some people are talking about, Greek, uh, Greece from uh, the common currency do represent the first significant reversals of a process that's been underway in Europe for the last 50 plus years that's proceeded in fits and starts but that compared to the original vision that the founders of the European steel and coal community had has probably been the single most successful example of integration in the post-war period. So there was some real momentum to the process and it is disturbing that we're talking about having to take steps backward, although again, it is a reminder of the perils of unbalanced integration.
0: Mm. We've talked a little bit about governments. We've talked a little bit about individuals. What about, what about companies? Um, what should, how should companies respond to globalization and to recognizing that they're in a, a 3.0 world?
1: Well, I think the first message for companies is you actually have to recognize that differences still matter. In some senses, this is the oldest lesson in international business, and yet it's a mistake that you see companies making over and over again. So for instance, take the case of Walmart, which is a company I've studied for 25 years now. About uh, five or six years ago, Lee Scott, who was then the CEO, was asked, what makes you think Walmart can be successful internationally? And his response was, in essence, look, if we could move from Arkansas to Alabama, how different is Argentina going to be? And uh, it's been quite a learning experience for Walmart that the differences between Argentina and Arkansas are a great deal greater than the differences between Arkansas and Alabama and require much more adaptation
0: and it 's interesting too that companies that such as GE we were talking earlier about GE that have perhaps once upon a time thought that globalization was about simply exporting the same product that they made in the states and just seeing you know trying to sell it around the world have have radically changed their point of view with experience
1: yeah, I think uh, GE is certainly a company that 's been in the vanguard of management thinking in a number of respects, and I think the evolution at GE is uh, a very interesting reminder of uh, both the distance that companies have come and the distance that remains to be traversed. So in terms of the distance that they've already traveled, uh, moving as you suggest from an export focus model to realizing that they actually need local operations was something that uh, really took up steam during Jack Welsh's last 10 years as CEO Mm. when they set about especially in the aftermath of the GE Honeywell deal, realizing that they actually needed to have a presence in Europe as opposed to just exporting to Europe. They're now very serious about uh, expanding beyond Europe to Asia, which is where a lot of the growth, if you look at GE's results in the last few years have have been. Having said that, uh, you know, uh, GE is still sort of trying to find the right managers to put in place. Because just given the way seniority-based systems work, uh, here you have a company that, like most large companies, derives the bulk of its revenues and earnings from outside the US. But the overwhelming majority, uh, 90%, by my estimate, of the top 200 people at GE are Americans. And there is a mismatch there that they're working on. But it's clearly an illustration of how much remains to be done to make GE better able to maximize the potential from operating in such different geographies.
0: We talked about false assumptions and false starts and and the fears that globalization throws up. Are you optimistic about the future of of, of this globalization project?
1: Um, I think I'm very optimistic about the medium to long run I think in the short run uh, uh, we have a major crisis in public finances, particularly in the developed world. And uh, it has different manifestations on different sides of the Atlantic. So we've talked about the Eurozone Mm -hmm. problems. We haven't talked about uh, the problems in the U.S. with uh, fiscal imbalances and inability, at least uh, as of now, to agree on mechanisms to bring that economy back.
0: Well interestingly, government debt seems to be one of the most effectively globalized um,
1: commodities. Uh, It does seem to be more globalized than some other commodities um, and I remember calculating some data before the crisis so on a weighted average basis, somewhere between 45-50% of holdings of government debt were external. Hmm. I'd, I'd add two things to that. First of all, that's still very far from 80 to 100%. Second, given what we've been seeing, there is a very rapid reduction in that figure. And so if you look right now at, for instance, Greece's external obligations, Ninety percent of Greece's external obligations, if you focus on debt to uh, debt to banks, are to banks in the eurozone. That's why it's a European problem. In contrast, if you look at U.S. banks' exposure to the pig's countries, with the exception of Ireland, which historically has been closed to the U.S. for a number of different reasons—geographically, ethnically, etc. And where US banks' exposure does amount to something like 10 or 11 percent of Ireland's total foreign debt. For the other pigs' countries, it's between 2, 4, 5 percent. And so there's a reason why it's the Europeans who've been so focused on solving the problem in Greece, because not only are international relationships limited, but those international interactions that do take place in our world mostly occur between countries that are close to each other culturally geographically economically and so forth which is why the u.s. was so close to canada in the examples i used earlier in the interview
0: now inevitably when there's when there's financial and an economic um, recession there will be pressure there is serious pressure on the american administration to, to sort of take a step back and be more protectionist There'll be talk of tariffs and quotas. What's your message to people who who are on that wavelength?
1: Well, first of all, Des, I I think you've articulated uh, really the key worry, apart from public finances, uh, that all of us should be alert to and try and uh, counteract. If you look at uh, the U.S. employment or rather unemployment situation, the U.S. has seven million fewer jobs than it did in December 2007. At the rate at which uh, the most recent uh, report had the U.S. economy creating jobs uh, it is going to be a matter of close to a decade before that, uh, before that uh, overhang gets wiped out and that's without accounting for the growth in the U.S. population and the labor force, even if the U.S. economy creates jobs at the maximum rate it's ever done, which is 200,000 jobs a month, we're talking about three and a half years to get back to the status quo ante. That's an eternity in politics and very bad things could happen in that time, which is why I am cautious about the short run.
0: Okay the book I wish you every success but it's actually a very good read as well I mean it's unusual for, for a book that, that's that's such a far-ranging book to be so interesting and to be so readable so I wish you luck with that what's next for you what are you what are you working on now apart from getting the word out there
1: well I think one of my particular interests is uh, helping uh, is in uh, consistent with the last chapter of the book uh, one uh, tries to uh, sort of work uh, on things that one's likely to be effective at. I've spent most of my life in business schools. And so one of the things that I'm really working on is trying to help business schools around the world globalize their curricula. There's a real dearth of globalization in the curricula of most business schools. Uh, Mostly what business schools do in the name of globalization or what the leading business schools do is getting interesting people together in terms of students and then take them to interesting places and unfortunately if that's all we do we're a specialized segment of the travel and hospitality industry so what I'm trying to do is particularly for those business schools and there are 15,000 schools around the world that grant higher degrees in business maybe a hundred, maybe even a thousand of them can afford to attract diverse student bodies, can afford foreign exchange programs. I'm really interested in the bottom ninety to ninety-nine percent whose students have some need to learn about globalization as well, but who cannot afford these levers that the affluent institutions pull on, and that's why a lot of my energies in the education space really are focused on trying to come up with materials and curricula that can be used at schools that can't rely on experiential learning as being the only way of getting their students acquainted with globalization.
0: So, this is learning materials that, that, that other schools can make use of that, that really um, you build on your work and, and sort of the, 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 that some of the best stuff coming out of the top schools?
1: Uh, learning materials uh, that other schools can use and that are uh, being made available free of charge. Because when I think of, for instance, the somewhere between 2,000 to 3,000 business schools in India. A case study priced at $12 or $6 is not going to help most of them. So part of it is the pricing, zero. Part of it is providing more support because the scarcest resource in a lot of these environments, it's not the students, it's the fact that there's a real dearth of faculty with a lot of experience because these business schools have emerged very quickly. So if people are going to teach these concepts effectively in those environments, they need more than just a case or even a case plus teaching note. They need access to presentation material. They need access to curricula that sort of actually attempt to synthesize modules. They need suggestions about middleware that might help connect some of the general ideas with the reality of their country or their region. And so that's why uh, my major activity in the education space is really working with a number of organisations, but particularly the AACSB, at trying to diffuse these materials to as many schools as possible.
0: Well, that's a subject that's sort of very um, close to the heart of the Thinkers 50, so let us know if we can be of any help with that. Pankesh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Des. Thank you for listening. That was a Thinkers 50 podcast. Thinkers 50 podcasts are produced by KDH Creative.